Our Bible reading is contained in Joel chapter 2, and we read verses 1 to 17. This is from the New Living Translation. Let us hear the word of God. Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem. Raise the alarm on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear, because the day of the Lord is upon us. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has been seen before or will ever be seen again. Fire burns in front of them and flames follow after them. Ahead of them the land lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. Behind them is nothing but desolation. Not one thing escapes. They look like horses. They charge forward like war horses. Look at them as they leap along the mountain tops. Listen to the noise they make, like the rumbling of chariots, like the roar of fire sweeping across a field of stubble, or like a mighty army moving into battle. Fear grips all the people. Every face grows pale with terror. The attackers march like warriors and scale city walls like soldiers. Straight forward they march, never breaking rank. They never jostle each other. Each moves in exactly the right position. They break through defences without missing a step. They swarm over the city and run along its walls. They enter all the houses, climbing like thieves through the windows. The earth quakes as they advance, and the heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army, and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows, perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord 
your God is before. Blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, and even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray, spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, as the God of Israel left them. Amen. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Now, this morning is the second in our series, thinking about the minor prophets. And last week for the beginning of our series, we had a bit of an introduction before looking at the first of the minor prophets, Hosea. Now, in our introduction to Hosea, we were able to discern that he was a prophet probably from around 760 BC to 722 BC, and it was relatively simple to work out the context into which he prophesied. However, the prophet that we're looking at today, Joel, is a lot more difficult As it said in the overview video, he probably was a prophet around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's difficult to tell. However, as we thought about last week when we were looking at Hosea, even though these prophets would have spoken in a certain time and a certain place, they also have major themes which transcend their own time and which are applicable to us now, and as applicable to us now, as they were in their own time. Now, as I also said last week, whilst the overview, so the video, is the head work, okay? It's hard work on a Sunday morning to go through a whole book of the Bible and try and figure out what's going on. The aim in the sermon each week is really to appeal to your heart, And to show how some of the themes found in these books really do speak to us. Even now. Across the years. Now, in our introduction last week, we thought about how the minor prophets were minor prophets. Not because of them or their themes being unimportant. But simply because their books are shorter than the major prophets. So Isaiah and Jeremiah or Daniel. And we also thought about how the minor prophets are roughly in age order. So the oldest is first, Hosea, and they're roughly also in size order. So longest to shortest. So this is an exact. And it certainly is here. Because you might have noticed, even though the reading I gave Donald was fairly long, that the book of Joel is actually very short. It's only three chapters long. So if you want to go home and read a whole book of the Bible, it would only take you 10 minutes, say maybe 15 max, 
to read the whole book. And I would encourage you, go home, read the book of Joel, see what it's about. Now today we're going to focus upon the middle part of the book. And we're going to focus uh, on some of the themes that we find in chapter 2. And hopefully, as, we were re- as Donald was reading through that chapter, he very quickly picked up that there were the themes of repentance and hope. Repentance and hope. And also, one of the things that is repeated, and one of the things that is a big theme in the book of Joel, is also the day of the Lord. That's a repeated refrain throughout the book of Joel. That there will be a day when judgment will come. Now, in the first chapter, we have the image, as we saw in the overview video, of locusts coming into the land and stripping back everything so that everything is ruined in the land of Israel. It's a day of darkness and it's a day of blackness. Now, we presume that this is a response from God to the sin of the Israelites. Although unlike Hosea, where Israelite sin is out- outlined completely, nothing specific is outlined here. Now in the first part of chapter 2, we see these attackers coming into Jerusalem with the Lord at the head of the column. And the second part of verse 11 says, The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? And so what is clear here is that the Lord's anger has been ignited against his people. Now in the context here, it seems that this picture of warriors overthrowing the city is a picture of Jerusalem being taken over. A picture perhaps of of the Israelites being taken off into exile as we know uh, that happened. And notice that when this event takes place, that it's unmistakable and it's inescapable. Nothing escapes. Fear grips all the people. Every face grows pale with terror. And it's complete devastation. The city's completely overrun. The warriors don't even have to miss a step. Did you notice that? They just trample everything on their way. There's going to be devastation coming to Jerusalem. But is it too late? Is this all set in stone? Well, if we move to verse 12 and onwards, clearly not. You see, what does the Lord say? He says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. You see, the picture is that the day of the Lord is coming. It's a time of judgment. It's a time of darkness. Because the Lord is not someone who's to be messed about with. Way back in Deuteronomy, God has said there would be blessings for the people of Israel for obedience and curses for disobedience. 
God is not to be messed with. Now, that's, that's really important for us to understand, isn't it? Sometimes, as I said last week, we bring God down to our level. We domesticate God. We make God cuddly. We make him like Santa Claus. God is not to be messed with. But as we saw last week, and as we see in verse 13, God is merciful. God is compassionate in his character. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. It isn't too late. Now, obviously, the Israelites cannot carry on the way they were before. They cannot continue in their disobedience and sin. They need to do something. What do they need to do? Well, they need to repent. Now, I guess that repentance is probably an old-fashioned notion in today's society. I think it's even probably becoming unfashionable within churches. But it's something that's fundamental, isn't it? The Lord requires the Israelites to truly turn away from their sin. I.e., not just saying they're going to change and really follow God, but, but they're not actually going to do it. God doesn't want them to to repent outwardly, i.e. tearing their clothes, as we see in verse 13. He wants them to repent inwardly, i.e. really to repent, to tear their hearts, to really grieve over their sin, to really seek after the Lord, to really change, to return to the Lord. Now you might notice here, as well as this being an individual thing, this is also a corporate thing. Did you notice that? Sometimes we think, you know, repentance is only an individual thing. There's a place for individual repentance. We'll get onto that. But it's also a corporate thing, isn't it? That everyone is to do it. Everyone is to gather together. Did you notice in our passage? It was quite strange if you read it. Elders, children, even the babies. That was highlighted. The babies are to come. It's comprehensive. It affects everyone. And as well as families, the priests in the temple are to weep and to mourn as well. So what I want you to notice is that there is a, a corporate weeping and mourning in Israel. That the people together acknowledge their sin and together they seek after the Lord. Now, why would they do this? Why would they be repenting in such a way? Why would they be weeping and mourning? You see, I don't want you to come away today thinking, oh, that was miserable. It was that guy's birthday, and look how miserable he is. I'm not miserable. Why do they do this? Why is there a place for repentance? Well, it's to avert disaster. That's why. You see, throughout their history, the Israelites have seen God give them a reprieve and show mercy. That's what they're hoping that God will do if they repent. Now, as we come to this passage today, the idea of repentance is as key now as it was in the time of Joel. Because as the Bible makes clear, we're all sinners. All of us have gone astray to our own way. And if we don't really believe that this morning, that we're a sinner, then we've no need to repent 
And even more crucially, we've no need for a saviour. Why do we have a cross on our wall? Why do we have a cross on the communion table? It's because it's fundamental to our faith. Jesus dying for our sin. Why is that? Because we're sinners. We need a saviour. You see, the fact that Jesus has come into the world shows that we need him. You see, none of us are good enough before a holy and an awesome God. There have been times for us all when we have sinned, times for us all when we've we've put ourselves before God. And the fact is that, that like the Israelites, we are on borrowed time. We're on borrowed time. You see, in Joel we read of the day of the Lord. And we believe as Christians that there will be a day of the Lord, a day of reckoning. It's alluded to in the book of Revelation. And therefore, we're all on borrowed time. We all need to get our houses in order. Because a day's coming. When either the Lord will return and he'll come like a thief in the night. Or our mortal life will be taken from us. The clock is ticking. As you know, it's my birthday today. I don't really feel older than 21 most of the time, mentally. But I have to admit that when I look in the mirror and see the grey hairs and the balding head, I'm not as young as I once was. Certainly John and Alistair don't think I'm young. Definitely not. Time is passing. Time is slipping away. But before we get too morbid, what do we see in Joel? What encouragement do we find there? Because there is encouragement. What's the encouragement? There is still time. There's still time. That's the encouragement. If you go away with nothing today, go away with that. There is still time. Time to do what? Well, for all of us, we don't know how much time. But you're still here today, aren't you? The call from the book of Joel is to repent while you still have time. That it's not too late yet. You see, what is repentance? It's turning. Turning from your sin and turning towards God. It's turning and putting your faith and trust in Jesus. For when you do, God will surely bring reprieve. That's the gospel message, isn't it? That when we turn from our wicked ways, when we turn from our sin, when we turn from our selfishness, and we turn towards God, God accepts us. See, what's one of the most famous stories in the Bible? Luke chapter 15, I think. The story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son who goes away from the father. And then spends his life in wild living. Spends all his money. Ends up destitute, living, working with the pigs, envying them the food that the pigs are eating. But then suddenly something happens. He thinks, you know, I'd be far better with my father. He makes his way back. And you know the most wonderful thing in that story? is not that the son comes back, which is wonderful incidentally. The most wonderful thing is that the father's waiting. That's wonderful, isn't it? The father is waiting. He's looking. He's watching. How many days, how many years had he been longing for his son to return? 
And then he sees him coming. And he runs towards it. Is that not the most wonderful picture? That's a picture for you. There's still time to turn away from your sin, to turn towards God. And God is watching, he is waiting, he is longing. Longing for you to come to him, to know his love, to know his care, to know his compassion. There is still time. As well as repenting individually, which of course is necessary for us in terms of salvation, Though we live in different days, there is, I think, a place also for corporate repentance. You see, Joel's prophecy might be addressed to the nation of Israel, but it's applicable to us too as God's people also, isn't it? You see, we don't have to look very far to see that the church in our nation is struggling. Not in all areas, but it is struggling. Certainly the Church of Scotland is is struggling. Lack of members, lack of ministers, lack of finance. And sometimes because of the challenges and struggles, we mourn the past, don't we, in the way that it used to be. You see, I'm just about old enough to remember the Sunday school trips when you had umpty-dum double-decker buses with the streamers out the window. I remember those days. I'm old enough. Just. Maybe you remember those days. And sometimes when we look at the past, we mourn that. Why is the church not like that today? Why are we struggling in terms of getting young people in? Why are we struggling in terms of members? Tentatively, I might suggest to you that some of the struggles that we might have is because we've mourned in self-pity rather than corporately mourning and repenting before Almighty God. We've perhaps trusted in our own schemes, our own reorganizational skills, rather than seeking after God in repentance and faith. Because let's not be in any doubt. It's only the Lord who can bring life. Now we know that, don't we? We know that in our individual lives. We cannot organize our life to say, look, I'll be a better person and I'll reach heaven. It doesn't work like that, does it? We know in terms of individual salvation it's about repentance saying I am not good enough before almighty God I'm not perfect in my ways I'm not holy as God is holy therefore I need a saviour but sometimes we don't think that way in terms of the church do we actually it's only God who can breathe life into his church through his Holy Spirit only God Is there a place for corporate repentance? A turning back to God in our time? I believe there is. So we repent individually. We repent corporately. There's still time to do it. But lastly, we trust that God brings the blessing. God brings the blessing. See, if you knew nothing about the book of Joel before today, I guarantee you there is one part of the book you've heard before. And that's the end of chapter 2. We didn't read it today. 
Because after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and the disciples were left and they met together and they prayed together. We're told they were in an upper room together, fearing the Jews, but they were waiting for something. In fact, they were waiting for someone. They were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. And the Spirit came upon them. We see that in Acts chapter 2, described like a rushing wind and tongues of fire resting upon the disciples. And as the disciples, suddenly emboldened by the Holy Spirit, as they spill out onto the streets, and the crowds there, who are from all different nations, are confused about what is happening, what does Peter say? He begins to speak, and what does he say? Well, he quotes directly from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, where the Lord says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Incidentally, I'm not quite sure which category I'm now in. And so on. But Peter says, as the Spirit is poured out, that this was predicted by Joel all these years ago. The pouring out of the Spirit for all who will believe. And that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want you to see this morning that there is still time. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't really know if your salvation is secured in Jesus. Maybe you think that being a Christian is about being a good person. It's not. It's about saying, look, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved by grace. And only through Jesus can I come into the kingdom. It's about turning, repenting as an individual and coming and saying, God, I thank you so much for your love and your care for me. It's also a place, isn't there, for corporate repentance. Perhaps we need to do that in the church. Perhaps we need to do that in the church here in West Kilbride. Saying we're sorry, Lord, for the times when we've, we've trusted in ourselves and our own schemes. Rather than crying out to you and saying, God, we cannot do it in our own strength. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. That's what it says in one of the stained glass windows. Come to Susan Bradbury, you'll find out more about that. We need to corporately repent. But the last thing is that God brings the blessing. And that's the wonderful thing, isn't it? You see, sometimes you think, you know, mourning, weeping, blackness, darkness, day of the Lord, oh, this is heavy, hard stuff. But you realize that when you go through all that, it's God who brings the blessing. Why does God want you to repent? Because he wants you to be blessed. That's it. He doesn't want you to go the path of destruction. He wants you to go the path of life. God brings the blessing. The blessing of hope. The blessing of life. The blessing of his Holy Spirit. But it all stems from repentance. If we don't think we need to repent... We will not receive the blessings. But when we truly repent, individually, corporately, there are great blessings to be had. Do you believe that today? The people of Israel 
I believe, did not repent. They ended up in exile. Their city was overrun. Why do they think that Joel was written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? It was to encourage the Israelites that even though they were in exile, that there could be a time when they were restored back to their own land. Today, there is still time. Still time for you to repent. Still time for you to know the blessings. And if you're here this morning and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have repented, then know the blessings that are found only in Christ. Know that the Holy Spirit is the one who infills you, who brings you life, who brings you hope. Shall we just pray together? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for all these themes that we are discovering in the Minor Prophets. We thank you for the theme of repentance today, perhaps an old-fashioned notion in today's society, and yet something that is so fundamental within the church and within the Christian faith. Because we recognize that if we do not see our need of repentance, of turning from our sin and turning towards you, then we'll never understand why you have sent Jesus into the world as the Savior of the world. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who recognizes their need to repent, that they would be willing to, that they would be bold enough to, and that they would come to you, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, that when we repent, individually and corporately, that there are blessings And that, Lord God, that when we repent, we can receive those blessings. We thank you so much, Lord God, that you want us to turn to you. Because you don't want us to go down the path of destruction, the path of judgment. But you want us to be restored to life and to know eternal life. And to know the blessings of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord God that we would take hold of those blessings today, individually and corporately as the church. And Father, we're also challenged by today's passage because as the people corporately repented before you or were called to repent before you, we recognize that perhaps we as a church, church here in West Kilbride, the Church of Scotland. Maybe we need to repent before you. We ask for forgiveness for those times when we've trusted in our own schemes, when we've trusted in our own ingenuity, rather than trusting in you and trusting that you're the one who can bring the increase, that you're the one who can bring life and hope. So, Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us Through your word today we pray, for we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.